This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer. It's always great to have your company. Now, later on in the program, former Supreme Court Judge Michael Pembroke. We should recognise that China contributes more to peacekeeping forces and counterterrorism around the world than any other country. And we should stay out of the internal issues within China. We've got to cut out the ideology and the moralising and show some independence of national character and some pragmatism. Some unconventional views about just who is following the rules, America or China. But first, an important look at the silent victims of COVID, people whose lives have gone from bad to unlivable because of the pandemic, the victims of modern slavery. Now, as we've seen all year, the global supply chain of almost every industry has been interrupted. If you've been to any discount department stores where most things are made in China, India or Bangladesh, you've seen a lot of empty shelves, right? And it's the workers at the bottom end of this supply chain who make these things, they're suffering the most. Now, in normal times, normal non-pandemic times, an estimated 46 million people, get a lot of this, 46 million people worldwide are affected by low and unpaid work and appalling living conditions. That's almost twice the population of this country. Since COVID, things have declined even further. My guests today have been fighting slavery their life work and this year have co-founded an anti-slavery organisation of their own. They say that modern slavery is not just happening in developing countries, but that Australia too is responsible for condoning those conditions. Sarah Morse is the director of Unchained and Dr. Stephen Morse is the CEO, a husband and wife team. Welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, when we think of slavery, chances are that most people imagine the shipping and bonding of African slaves who were forced to build colonies or industries like farming, for example. And usually these pictures are set in the past. They're seen as history. It's not true, though, is it? Stephen, can you start by defining what modern slavery actually means? Sure. Modern slavery is an umbrella term. It comprises forced labour, forced child labour, dead bondage, domestic servitude, forced marriage, and human trafficking are other extreme forms of human rights violations. Now, how someone ends up enslaved, surely it varies from country and region, but, I mean, do dictatorship and slavery tend to go together? They can. For example, in places like Uzbekistan, the population are conscripted during harvest season of the cotton, so children and adults are called onto the fields to harvest the cotton, so that's a form of yeah, forced labour. Okay, now, Sarah, can you break down the number of who makes up the, I mentioned the 46 million people in my introduction. Can you just break down the number of who makes up the 46 million people affected by slavery? Yes, we know that 46 million people are living in slavery in the world today. Of those, 60% are in forced labour and two-thirds of those are in the Asia-Pacific region where we source most of our goods from here in Australia. Uh, We know that around 70% are women and girls uh, and around 45% are children. Now, you both spent years witnessing slavery firsthand. Uh, Tell us about your time in Spain. Stephen. Sure. Well, we were in Spain from 2011 till 2016. And during that time, Sarah worked in a safe house for women 
who had been trafficked onto the streets for sex work. Uh, they had been arrested initially uh, for being illegal immigrants. But once they were deemed that they'd been trafficked, they were released and then were able to access uh, lots of services. And Sarah worked in that capacity, uh, helping women, particularly regarding their health needs. And you were researching your doctorate at the time in Spain. What was your focus on? What did you find? My focus was on the demand for sexual services, so the male demand, particularly for sexual services and pornography, and looking at the economic and social push and pull factors and and the cultural factors of why this occurs uh, in Spain and, and in Europe. Now, Sarah, as Stephen mentioned, you were also in Spain at the time. Can you give us an example of someone you were able to help survive trafficking? Yeah, so um, I worked with many women in the, in the safe house where I worked, but the one that sticks in my mind the most is a lady called Beauty. Uh, when our team first met her, she had HIV. She'd basically been abandoned in a hospital because she was of no use to her traffickers anymore. Uh, and when they found her, they thought that she was dying. Uh, but through their care, through having access to medication and uh, and good health care, she actually was able to recover. And she spent two years living in our safe house, learning life skills, having her health uh, psychosocial needs attended to. And uh, while I was there, we actually got to attend her wedding. And uh, she married a, oh. a Nigerian pastor. She was from Nigeria herself. Uh, and Stephen recently had a chance to catch up with her. And uh, they now have two small children in a wonderful circle of events. Uh, as we were leaving Spain and, and getting rid of our whole apartment worth of furniture, uh, Beauty and her family also needed an apartment worth of furniture as they moved into a new apartment. So we were able to uh, to give her all of our furniture to set her up for to continue in the next season of her life. Well, that is an encouraging story. Surely there's global collaboration here within the goal of of ending slavery, I think of you know the Walk Free Foundation, which was founded by the Australian mining magnate Andrew Forrest, and that publishes a global slavery index uh, to measure the scale and prevalence of modern slavery. Tell us about the Modern Slavery Act, Stephen. Sure, the Modern Slavery Act is a Commonwealth law. It was brought in at the end of 2018, and it's designed to encourage companies. Uh, to be transparent and take responsibility for the risk of modern slavery in their supply chains and operations. And you're affiliated with Unchained. Sarah, tell us about the work you do within Unchained. So, so Stephen and I started Unchained. Stephen's mm. the CEO and I'm the director of Unchained Business Services. And really what Unchained is, is a way of businesses engaging with the Modern Slavery Act so when we came back from Spain with our experience of working with people in human trafficking, with our research, we thought, how can we apply that to an Australian context? And that was just right at the time when the Modern Slavery Act was being passed. And we thought, here is an opportunity to bring our experience and our research into the corporate market. So really, we're helping companies look at their supply chains to do due diligence in their supply chains and work out the risk of modern slavery and also what they can do to make an impact on an, modern slavery. An, a noble cause indeed. If you've just tuned in, this is Tom Switzer on RN's Between the Lines, ABC's Radio National. And as you just heard, my guests are Sarah and Stephen Morse. They're a husband and wife team. They're the co-founders and directors of the anti-slavery organisation Unchained. Now, sadly, even with all the framework in place to tackle slavery, along comes 2020, the COVID virus. It's complicated further by the recession of the world economy. 
Sarah, uh, keeping with you, how has the pandemic affected the workers at the bottom of the supply chain? That's right. I mean, the the pandemic is having catastrophic effects on supply chains and the people within them. And we know that right at the beginning of COVID, uh, thousands of people lost their jobs overnight. Uh, for example, Bangladeshi workers in factories were just told simply not to come back to work the next day. I read a story of a lady, Fatima, uh, a 26-year-old with one child, and she said, one minute I was working, the next I was told to go home and not come back. What will I do? Uh, and we're seeing this story over and over again. Just yesterday, I read about 4,000 Filipino workers who've been laid off because their contracts have been cancelled from big name brands on this side of the world. Yeah, well, this is a reminder that slaves are the poorest of the poor. So they're most affected, you know, when factories close down, there's no water, they're more cramped living, no access to medical care, all very disturbing. Stephen, a terrible irony has come from the pandemic in one of these stories. Can you tell us about the manufacturers of PPE in Malaysia, in Southeast Asia? Yes, so Malaysia is a major producer of rubber and therefore rubber products made from rubber. And so we know that prior to uh, COVID-19, there were uh, certain bans on, on manufacturers in the US uh, regarding the manufacturing of PPE products because of the conditions of workers and the standards uh, that were in place. What's interesting is that as the pandemic uh, broke out and the demand for PPE products grew, those restrictions were lifted um, so that those products could be made. And so this is concerning regarding the exposure, increasing the risk of modern slavery in those areas. It, and that brings us to Australia. I can just imagine those of you tuning in, you'd like to think of yourself as an ethical consumer. You wouldn't buy anything from a supplier that exploits its, its employees. I've certainly thought that. Sarah, is it really true? Look, here in Australia, the Global Slavery Index estimates that there are around 15,000 people living in slavery. So they're mostly in the agriculture, construction, domestic service, hospitality and sex industries, as, as well as services provided uh, often by subcontractors, such as cleaning, security um, and even car washing. Yeah, but Stephen, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you meet a lot of Australians who think that no kind of slavery happens in this country. Tell us more. <laughs> yes, I, I have conversations on a, on a daily basis with lots of companies and re receptionists and executive assistants who sort of take a second look and they think, modern, modern what? Slavery? Does this actually occur? <laughs> so there is a growing understanding of this issue uh, in certain sectors of society, which is great to see, and a growing desire among consumers and younger consumers to be careful in how they purchase and what they're buying and to know what's behind the brand and the barcode. But yeah, there is still a great need for consumers and businesses to understand what are the implications of the choices they make and to make sure that yeah, their desires for ethically made products is actually real. Yeah, and you think of different types of slavery. You think of forced marriage, debt bondage, sex slavery, child labour in the Australian context. Who are the most vulnerable groups to fall victim to exploitation, Stephen? Well, in Australia, we have a number of women and at times they're underage uh, who are forced into marriage, so married against their will. Uh, and that is an issue here in Australia. Conservative estimates around 4,500 up to 8,000 in Australia in, in any given year. So these 
these people are at risk. We also know that there is a risk among temporary workers, uh, migrant workers in Australia. There's up, up to one million temporary workers in Australia, and they have been yeah, badly affected by COVID-19. And so they are now at risk of having to receive uh, lower pay uh, and also to do jobs for no pay. Yeah, as you say, COVID's made it harder. But Sarah, how do you identify a person or group who's being exploited? That's right. I mean, I guess it depends on the industry. But, uh, for example, I read a story about uh, a man called Abdul who uh, was a Bangladeshi man who was working on a construction site just outside of Canberra. Uh, he came here thinking that he was going to be able to earn a lot of money to send home to his family, to send his four children to school. But in the end, he ended up working uh, six days a week for around $250 and was forced to give $100 back of that to his uh, employer for accommodation costs. And so I guess it's, you know, if you're on a construction site, it's looking at who's there. Do they speak English? Do they have appropriate PPE? Even having a conversation with them to find out, you know, are they okay? Because a lot of these people feel like they don't have a voice. They often don't speak English and they don't know who to turn to. So, you know, in the case of healthcare workers, you know, keeping your eye out for people who come through the emergency department who may be controlled by uh, an older man, for example, looking out for signs of physical, sexual, emotional abuse. So I guess it depends on the sector where people are working, but the point is to keep your eyes and ears open. And if you do see something uh, that can Concerns you. You can call the Australian Federal Police, uh, have a hotline, and also uh, the Red Cross and the Salvation Army, and uh, all of those numbers are available on our website. Okay, now we'll put the website on our website, the, the link there. But Stephen, public policy does the Australian government? I mean, to what extent does it take a, a an active role in preventing slavery, whether it's international or here? Yeah. So the Australian government, uh, through the Modern Slavery Act, uh, through the National Action Plan. Uh, through the work of AusAid, uh, the Australian Border Force, putting in place frameworks and policies to address uh, these forms of human rights abuses and violations, and also updating those to make them current and relevant. The government is doing a lot of work to engage civil society groups, uh, business groups, uh, academics, to really un make sure that they understand yeah, the issues, what is actually pressing and the most relevant uh, to the Australian context and the context around Australia. And anything else, Sarah, that you'd like to see happen in Australia to further the fight against slavery? Uh, so at the moment, there's discussion in state parliament about enacting the New South Wales Modern Slavery Act. So interestingly, the New South Wales Act was actually passed before the Commonwealth one. Uh, it's much stronger and it allows provision for government procurement. It has a modern slavery commissioner. It has uh, a hotline to identify victims of modern slavery. So all of these things are included in the Modern Slavery Act for New South Wales. But when the Commonwealth law came in, the New South Wales Act was put on hold. And so we're currently asking the Australian government to enact that state law so that more companies will need to comply. Uh, the state law also includes companies who have a $50 million revenue as opposed to $100 million for the Commonwealth law. So we would really like to see that law come in because it's one of the strongest laws in the world of its kind. They're actually leading the way. So when we're talking about what is the Australian government doing, we're actually leading the way in creating safer supply chains for people all around the world. So the lesson here is that human bondage remains widespread, 
uh, but it's taking a new global abolitionist movement to defeat the new slavery, and Australia is playing an important part. Sarah, Stephen, thanks so much for being on Between the Lines today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sarah Morse and Dr Stephen Morse are co-founders and directors of Unchained, and we'll put links to their work on our website. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer, making sense of Australia's place in the world. Well, it's widely believed that the world in which we live, the institutions of governance, the rules, the norms, is largely inspired by the kind of global leadership the US has exercised for decades. Now, in this reading, the liberal rules-based international order, how often have we heard that term used in the last few years? In this reading, it's been a profoundly positive force for promoting peace and prosperity. However, 75 years after the US helped create it, that order is now in peril. Now, that's the conventional wisdom. A different interpretation is that during the American century, it was the US itself that comprehensively failed to live up to the ideals of that order. Michael Pembroke is author of Play by the Rules, The Short History of America's Leadership from Hiroshima to COVID-19. It's published by Hardy Grant. Michael, welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you, Tom. Now, the consensus view is that this rules-based international order, it's in deep trouble. Its destruction is being blamed on Donald Trump's America First agenda. After all, Trump has raised tariffs, he's weakened alliances and withdrawn Washington from global agreements. What's wrong with that view? Well, I think Trump is, the, uh, is a symptom, not the cause. He certainly accelerated the process. But uh, the point of my book is that what is happening now is the continuation of a long-standing trend. Very shortly after the United Nations Charter and the Nuremberg war crimes trials, the United States started abandoning some of those most important underlying principles. Okay, so the US um, has failed to live up to this rules-based order. How so? Well, I'm interested in leadership. The, the book is about leadership and, and whether it's leadership by a platoon commander or a headmaster or a politician or a nation, there needs to be restraint and there needs to be the demonstration of higher standards. And um, frankly, there hasn't been either restraint or high standards by the United States since at least 1948. In 1948, the United States covertly engaged in the most blatant campaign to undermine the Italian general elections. And they talk about the 2016 interference in the US presidential mm. election, but Italy was a very, very bad case. And uh, that was all because through the democratic processes of the Italian system, it looked possible that the Italian Communist Party might gain power. Contrary to the principles of the UN Charter, the first principle of which is that you recognise and respect the sovereignty of other nations, Washington decided that it would not be able to live with a democratic process in a sovereign country which brought about a communist government. So it, it undermined those elections. So you very rarely heard that kind of example, that historical precedent uh, during the height of the Russiagate controversy, you know, when you all too often heard that this was outrageous, that Russia was interfering in the internal affairs of American democracy. Your argument here is that there are many examples in the post-war era when America has been guilty of doing precisely that. 
Well, take Iran, for example. We hear constantly about how evil Iran is, but in Iran, they regard the original sin as the covert coup led by the CIA, which toppled the democratic government of Iran in 1953. Iran was not communist, but the United States was concerned that there might be communism, there might be upheaval, there might be unrest. And uh, with some assistance from the British, they toppled that regime and the Iranians have never forgotten. The result was they had 25 years of uh, the Shah, who was increasingly authoritarian and whom they toppled in 1979. Many people would say Mm. that, uh, you know, Iraq and Vietnam are the best examples of America failing Mm. to live up to the principles of a rules-based international order. After all, neither intervention had the backing of the United Nations. Your book is full of other examples. Tell us about Chile in 1973. Well, Chile was a, is a sad example, really, because Nixon and Kissinger were absolutely besotted with Allende. They thought he was communist. He wasn't, actually. He was a pillar of the establishment in Chile and, and a mason. But he believed in a sort of liberal, democratic, socialist order. And he wanted to provide a better deal for the Chileans which up to that point in time, in 1973, had been dominated by large American corporations who were taking huge profits out of the country. And um, that just caused Nixon to be set against Allende. Now, with all those examples you highlight, and there are many more in your book, and I'm talking to Michael Pembroke, and his book is called Play by the Rules, the Short History of America's Leadership. Couldn't you argue that the US here is doing what all great powers in history have done, that is just defending its national interests. What's wrong with that? Well, it was doing more than that. It was abandoning the the moral principles uh, which underlay the new world order. It was responsible for bringing into existence in 1945. It was the power most responsible for leading the world down the path of the United Nations the World Trade Organization, the International Court of Justice, and the principle that there should only be collective action through the Security Council. Uh, It stars shone brightly, but then it just abandoned all of that and paid lip service to it. Michael Pembroke is a former Supreme Court judge in New South Wales and was a director's visitor at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton in 2017. Princeton, the Institute for Advanced Study, of course, is where Albert Einstein and George Kennan, the intellectual architect of containment, that's where they studied Michael. Now, reading a book, I came away thinking, well, you've got all these examples about how America has contradiction the notion of a liberal international order, but it raises the question, is the notion of a rules-based international order, is that just a furphy anyway? Because if you think about it, in a domestic society, you know, one can appeal to the police and the court's to monitor the disputes, but in international politics, where is the higher authority that nations can call on if a state gets into trouble? Well, um, this is an old argument, but it was an argument that was considered insufficient to stop the worldwide move towards the establishment of the rules-based order. It depends upon responsibility and leadership. For example, the one aspect of the United Nations Charter was the establishment of the International Court of Justice. And many countries adhered to its rulings. 
And so did the United States when it suited it. But in, in the mid-1980s, during the Reagan era, when Nicaragua won a case against the United States in the International Court of Justice, the United States did exactly what China did in relation to the South China Sea arbitration. It refused to recognise the judgment. It tried to veto the implementation of the judgment in the UN Security Council. The, the World Trade Organization is another similar body. It works when there's goodwill and good sense on the part of the participants. The United States has, for some time now, sought to undermine the World Trade Organization because it feels that it hasn't had as much success there as it would like. But are you overlooking the legal transgressions of other great powers? I mean, you just mentioned China. It broke international law with its increasingly assertive conduct in the South China Sea. Who can forget the Hague's ruling in 2016? Of course, China in 2014, Michael, invaded Ukraine. The United States is not alone here, right? Absolutely. But but I made clear in, in the introduction to the book that, that I was not engaging in a comparative exercise that would have been a very different sort of book if I was. I was interested in leadership. You cannot purport to be the global leader if you do not abide by the rules of the game. That's why the title of the book is Play by the Rules. Okay. Now, what does uh, all this mean, your thesis mean for, for the now? I mean, this intensifying security and economic competition between China and the United States. What does it mean for that? We're at a very dangerous period because the anti-China narrative in the United States is now pervasive. It's relentless. And there are adherents to the same view in Whitehall and Ottawa and Canberra. Singapore's prime minister, for example, represents the views of some others. He's warned against the negative view of China that has permeated the US establishment. It's being fueled, Tom, by a nativist fear that a new world is coming into being, one being shaped in distant lands and by foreign people, that American leadership is under threat. Well, I think all of those things will actually happen, but fear is a corrosive that searches for blame and results in denial. So we now have strategic distrust of China becoming an American national obsession. It's officially part of their security and defence policy, just as distrust of Soviet Russia once was. The ASEAN nations, for example, don't want any part of it, generally speaking, and that includes Vietnam and the Philippines and Thailand and Singapore and Indonesia. They all recognise that we have to coexist that we have to recognise the differences between us, including Australia and China, but we have to work together where there is common ground. There's plenty of room for working together with China on areas of common ground. I mean, Mike, Mike Cannon-Brooks from Atlassian is, has been very eloquent in explaining this case. We could work together on renewable energy. We could work together on healthcare and biopharma. We've already signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative in relation to projects outside Australia. That seems to be much overlooked, that we signed up in 2016 or 17, I think. We should recognise that China contributes more to peacekeeping forces and counterterrorism around the world than any other country. And we should stay out of the internal issues 
within China. We don't, for example, condemn the United States for its systemic racism or its excessive gun violence or its rampant inequality, nor should we take sides in relation to its treatment of the Uyghurs or what's going on in Tibet or even in Hong Kong. There are no shortage of international organisations which deal with those matters. And we've got to cut out the ideology and the moralising and show some independence of national character and some pragmatism. And that's what our ASEAN nations would like. That's the future, I think, in East Asia. And we should be part of it. Michael, great to have you on Radio National today. Thanks, Tom. Michael Pembroke is author of Play by the Rules, The Short History of America's Leadership from Hiroshima to COVID-19. It's published by Hardy Grant. Well, that's all for this week. And if you'd like more information or links to resources, just go to our website, abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. You can listen to any of our episodes there or download the program via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.